Jesus, coughing up a lung over there, Sharice. I just want to cough it out before I get onto. <coughs> before we get <coughs> into recording. Nobody wants. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Toon, and my co host is Eugene Kent. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. Have you started any Christmas festivities yet? I have been thinking about Christmas presents. Does that count? Sorry, I just wanted to give it. I'm recovering from a cold, so my voice still sounds... It's like significantly getting worse now that the mic is actually on. So my voice still yeah, sounds actually, really janky. Yeah, actually, it sounds worse than five minutes ago. I know. What is going on? Hang on a second. I have been thinking about Christmas presents, and that's kind of the extent. And there's been a lot of like WhatsApp group chats about dates for Tune and Fan and stuff like that. Winter solstice dinner. I had my first Christmas party yesterday. With who? Oh, damn. We should talk about Eugene's football team. Why? <laughs> okay. Eugene's, Actually, okay. Eugene's football team sends out a weekly recap email recapping their last week's game and i swear that these things are like personal essays like 1500 words they're not 1500 words they're probably like like 800 words 800 at least so let me explain how it happens all right so i play for this club and there's a lot of british people on the team and i suspect and i i say suspect because i never grew up in a sort of a british setup and while playing in canada there are bits and pieces here and there of English football that have come through. I guess growing up, a lot of your coaches were British, for example. But anyways, there's a lot of fines. There's like a fine for literally everything. So if you're late for training, you wear the wrong clothes, there's a fine. It's like a marginal, like 20 Hong Kong dollar fine, but there's still fines. After each game, the team nominates the man of the match, obviously the best player of the game, or the tit of the match. So the tit of the match is the person who's deemed to to commit the biggest screw-up of the game. So you can actually be nominated for both, meaning you can score three goals, but if, let's say, you have a really bad miss or you do something stupid, you can also get nominated for the tit of the match. Interesting. Now, the punishment for being the tit of the match includes you have to wear this full kit, and it entails a kit. How do I put this? It's like a yellow and blue kit but it's split down the middle it's like this this sort of two-faced kit yellow shorts and yellow socks i guess in football culture they they call it a full kit wanker you have to drink a pint of guinness in a in a race that includes a shot of vodka so you're going up against the man of the match uh and you have to obviously see who chugs it faster you can see where the the Britishness of this comes through, I guess. And finally, you have to write the match report oh, for the past game. Oh, wait, I didn't know that. You're telling me that the tit of the match writes the match report. Exactly. I thought the same person was writing the match report. So it like rotates. Okay, so the reason I know any of this is because Eugene has taken to forwarding me these match recaps. I'm just going to read this postscript on last week's match recap. <laughs> P.S. Eugene has proven himself as an astonishing provider of media. Never seen any more pleasing imagery in my entire life. And from now onward is going to be in charge of media and content coverage. So yeah. Yeah, well. Eugene's skills have been validated. That media includes photos I take after the game. Yeah, I take photos after the game sometimes. Like we'll, we'll be chilling in the bar. And I share a lot of media, obviously. Charisse knows I this. Mean, a lot of people know I just like 
That's like literally your profession. Is finding Quite media to actually share. actually your profession. While I have you on the air, can you grab your phone real real quick? Yeah. I'm going to send over something really funny that you might enjoy. Oh, wow. So I just sent Sharice photos I took from our Christmas party yesterday. These are great. You guys look like you're having fun. Really great Christmas sweaters. I'm disappointed that you were not wearing one. Mine hasn't come yet. What it do you actually mean? Did arrived you order one? Saturday morning. Yeah, I had to order one. Oh. Oh my gosh. Okay, but Eugene is wearing Eugene is not wearing a Christmas sweater, but he is wearing his fisherman's hat. I you know what I told everyone? I'm dressing up as a piece of coal. <laughs> uh, so I'm wearing these like Haven Clark Wallabies and this girl is like, Your tag is still on your shoes. And like I was like, Hey, I don't know, it's fashion. That I love that. I really love that comment that you got. I mean, you look out of place, I have to say. The only photo, I don't know if you can see my full outfit. I saw your full outfit in the photo where you guys are singing carols, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah, there's that one. Yeah. Let me describe this to everyone else. It's like eight men wearing funny Christmas sweaters, okay? Like penguins and reindeers. And then Eugene lurking in the background. It's a snowman. It's not a penguin. There are people with penguins on their sweaters. I don't know. Anyway, Shh. Eugene lurking in the background, fisherman hat, thick black frames, dressed in, all, dressed in all black. Like, you're trying to go to a different party. Yeah, I definitely am. <sighs> I, I just walked to the beat of my own drum, Sharice. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I actually think that the guest's comment about your shoes is a great segue into your subject. Okay, let's get this going then. My topic this week is Dior brings streetwear OG Sean Stussy out of retirement. So for Dior's pre-fall 2020 show, designer Kim Jones unleashed probably one of the more unexpected collaborations by introducing Sean Stussy. And I say unexpected not because it's streetwear meets luxury slash high fashion. It's more that Sean Stussy himself was kind of brought out of retirement. Uh, for those unfamiliar, mm, I mean, it's kind of the history of Sean Stussy. He basically is, in many ways, the creator, unexpectedly, of streetwear. Maybe I should rephrase that because it's very awkwardly said in the sense that he basically, by virtue of just shaping surfboards and then creating merch around his brand and his graphic design and visual language, yeah. Ended up creating Stussy, the streetwear brand. Yeah, like Sean Stussy, 40 years ago now, which is a long time, 40 years ago now, was a surfer, just chilling, making t-shirts around, you know, surfing and also paraphernalia and like putting his own designs on it. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's not like we're not trying to give him credit. It's just that he didn't set out to do it and was like, I'm going to make streetwear a thing, you know? And he largely doesn't that word streetwear the one thing about sean stucy is like he just did it because it was yeah ultimately what he wanted to do versus any sort of commercial interest and yeah i i suspect that's probably a, a reason why he left stucy back in the day like why 96. he actually exited the company not that we've gotten to the opinion portion of this segment but sean stucy is definitely you know the original original and like you said you know not commercial intent when he started out. Yeah, I mean, he's done a few things here and there post Stussy the brand. Like he did us, he did S Double, which was in some ways sort of like Stussy Deluxe. And Stussy Deluxe was meant to be this little bit more upscale, more mature version of Stussy. But I'm curious for you, what's your opinion of Sean Stussy as somebody that wasn't sort of fully entrenched in the world of streetwear, but knows enough about it? I guess I think of him as this godfather of streetwear who didn't ask to be it. <laughs> like yeah. he's this figurehead of um, of what became a movement and a trend and he didn't really see himself that way. I think I think he's a great guy in terms of like I'm not great as in personality. I don't know that. But like he originally just started out making things that he cared about and like for his friends and for himself. And like that is at the heart of streetwear, right? So he was like emblematic of it. I had dinner with him maybe fuck my might have almost ten years ago, I think. And he just seemed like a super down to earth chill guy and very, very interested in I think what was happening versus 
some of the OGs typically defer. And this is actually like a, a, a really interesting side convo in terms of how people that are pioneers, how they react and communicate to the industry they were such a big part of as they grow older. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think there's some, in some way, some people get super salty about it and they're like, hey, they start to hate on everything and they dismiss everything. Like back in the day, things were like this or like that. Um, but he didn't really come, it, come from it from that vantage point. I think he was more interested in how things had developed and how they were growing and emerging. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just a pure fascination around it. Yeah, I mean, something else I think that shows kind of his stance on things is what he said when he was announcing the collaboration with Dior. Did you read this? Like, Sean Stussy posted... Mm, I think posted, I read it, yeah. The original one, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe you can read it. So Sean Stussy shared the Dior collaboration on his personal Instagram, and I assume that this caption was written by himself. It sounds like it's from him. And he said, It has been really hard for me to keep this to myself for six months now but seems after traveling all day to Miami from Paris, the cat's out the bag. I opened my phone to see that word is out. Kim has brought me out of retirement to work with him and his Dior family on fall 2020. I gotta say here now how good a vibe and how natural this project has felt for me before this thing breaks in a day or so. No matter what goes down, I want to thank the whole crew over there for taking me in and making me feel welcomed. Now I'm just going to enjoy the next couple days and watch it unfold. And so like, I think just that as well gives you a sense of his attitude. Like, laid back this was clearly a thing that he personally was into doing like it seems like he himself was like yeah this is something i can get on board with i feel good about and it's not even really about like the effect that it has funny enough like he doesn't really care like oh this is going to totally rock people's you know like their surprise like whatever the shock is gonna be that wasn't what it was about for him like he just thought it was cool to like work with kim jones and dior i think as an aside and i don't know how many people are actively aware of this but a lot of people miscredited this collaboration as stussy times dior as in stussy the brand and i think that that maybe just shows people aren't fully aware that he's been checked out for a minute but actually of all the Stussy logos, do you know what the inspiration was for one of their mainstay logos? Is it not his handwriting? There's the other one that he has. Oh, yeah. The two, the flipped S's. Chanel? Gucci? Yeah, Chanel. Chanel. Yeah, I got it right the first time. It's interesting because like this dates back however long and it's kind of always been an inspiration. Like that linking of streetwear and luxury that he actually began so i think that's actually the deeper layer are we gonna we're talking more about D- dior and sean stussy right and like kim jones and sean stussy i was more using that as a reference that like that original logo by sean stussy was already an indication of stussy's interest in sort of bridging that gap right one more thing is that i don't know if this i don't know one can prove that this is true or not But Kim Jones did an interview with WWD about this collaboration. And Kim Jones said that Stussy was a part of his life as a teenager, like Stussy the brand. And like he was into it and bought it and wore it. And that was part of his like upbringing. So there is that personal connection for Kim Jones. Yeah. I mean, in growing up in Canada, Stussy was your easiest way to get on board into quote unquote streetwear at the time because it was the biggest one. So it was the easiest brand to buy into. I think for me, this is sort of where we open up the can of worms, like the the discussion around the state of affairs, I guess. In some ways, uh, a segue into a big discussion. And I say big not because it's going to be long or anything, but just the, the discussion around this luxury meets streetwear intersection. What does it mean on at the very core of it? Because I, I have several ideas and I I don't know if it's about putting them out there and you can yourself maybe pick and choose like one of the lanes we can we can pursue further. Oh, before we get into it, maybe I can talk a little bit about, the, about what the collection entails. For the pieces that were released, a lot of them obviously that involved Stussy, Sean Stussy, were more on the graphical side. And they included this wave print that he created 
and and the application of his hand style in writing out the word Dior. And there's also like a sneaker that released as well. So yeah. I think that ultimately it's like obviously the collection is the collection on its own, but it's sort of like a a capsule within it. The collection is not just like graphics. It's still a lot like what you would expect a Dior fall collection to look like. Like still a lot of tailored pieces, you know, high-end fabrics, like that kind of structure in case anyone was curious. So um, back into what this means. Oh, he also did the set design. Oh, yeah, like, which was at uh, Miami, in Miami, and like draws inspiration yeah. from that. Let's maybe talk a little bit about... Yeah, tell me your conflicted opinions on it. I think it's not really the conflicted opinion. It's more about how I feel that streetwear has traditionally been part of, uh, like a marginalized part of culture. And I say marginalized, like, it's, it's always been subcultural in a sense. It's obviously changed significantly now. But it just feels as though the approach of high fashion in my eyes has never really taken a very um like the approach to high fashion has always been whether you like to think of it or not very corporate right it's a very consumeristic thing whereas i think the honesty around streetwear has always been that it's just an idea that someone wants to put out in the world and the democratic nature of the pieces put out which were usually t-shirts and visual t-shirts like graphic design that itself represented one side of the spectrum and i think high fashion while it's meant to be quote unquote creative like i think those days are long gone i look at it as high fashion coming in and taking the essence and the soul of streetwear i don't know if my vision of high fashion is as bleak as yours uh, for me i think it's great that these people that have been such pioneers in developing the the world of streetwear and street culture are getting paid and they're getting recognized. Like, yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. But I guess my my deeper question now is that why is high fashion coming to streetwear now? Is it because they're out of <sighs> ideas? Is it because it's sort of what's what's cool and what's trendy right now? I mean, there's probably no specific bucket that suggests what the answer is. But I just find it very interesting why the timing is now versus Shewer has tried, maybe not tried, but has always been referential and sort of been in touching distance of high fashion or tried to anyways. And I'm just curious, what was the, the turning point for it to now sort of all crystallize? Okay, so this is actually one of the reasons why I mentioned the Kim Jones WWD interview. I was setting myself up for later. Kim Jones was born in 1973 and he's 46 right now. And Stussy was founded in the 1980s. So what I'm driving at here is that part of the reason maybe that high fashion is turning to streetwear now is because the people who are at the head of high fashion grew up with streetwear. And so it's about Kim Jones having that personal connection with streetwear, whereas previously older heads of the, high, the luxury high-end fashion brands did not have that relationship. I think that's valid. I think that's a pretty good reason. And if like you were Kim Jones and you were in this position at the head of this luxury house, it's kind of like, hey, something I really want to do and I'm excited to yeah. do. It, it's actually a good point because there have been fewer sort of brand name things. And I use things very loosely. It's like I'm talking about brands. I'm talking about personalities prior to that that had the same sort of brand element around it in which it still exists today and i say that like yeah i think that era of the emergence of household name artists were quite strong yeah 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 exactly because it, it could have been like oh maybe designers in like maybe dior in the 80s were being nostalgic about like 1940s style but the the throwback would be like 1940s the decade or like mm -hmm some kind of trend in the 1940s and not a brand name versus like what you just said that like, you know, since I guess the eighties or more recently in contemporary culture, there is a lot about like longevity of a brand, which is why it's possible now to still have like a collaboration with Sean Stussy and have that be relevant rather than just yeah. like referentially doing something that's like, Oh, surf culture from the eighties. 
Yeah, I think I need to look at this from the lens of knowing what it was like 10 years ago to try to gain a level of respect with high fashion and recognizing that it wasn't really going to go anywhere. They always kind of look down on you versus where it is now. And you're like, oh, this is maybe. But I think you're right. I think it's a timing issue in the sense that the timing needed to be right. And it's kind of what we look at now in terms of generational differences need to be need to be they need to be phased out through the natural process of how a company changes, right? Like at some point in time, people leave the company and they retire and you need those people that don't really have the proper vision to be out of the picture. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. I think for me, it's the thing about it that maybe has been the conflicting element of it was there were projects coming out of these collaborations. Like there was the... The Air Jordan that came yeah. out. I think that's pretty trash. It was pretty mediocre. The Air, uh, sorry, the Air Jordan with Dior for people who yeah. haven't heard. And then a few days earlier, there was Prada and Adidas. And I'm like, man, these are so bad. Like, yeah, these are, I think I, and in some ways, I can, on, I can only really look at it from the perspective of someone got paid. And I hope that someone was a person that in the past was on the fringes and didn't command the respect of high well, fashion. You know, an interesting thing about high fashion, though, is that they've always done, in my opinion, my subjective opinion, they've always done a, not a very good job with footwear. Even before they were doing collaborations, like the footwear always seemed like an afterthought in terms of collections. It was always about apparel, like what's on the body. And the footwear was just yeah. like incidental. So I'm not surprised that like the, the high fashion, part. yeah, I'm not surprised really that the high fashion streetwear footwear collaborations are weak. I mean, but it's also, you have the ability to leverage your creative Because it's not balanced in that sense though, but it's not balanced because the creative comes all from the streetwear side, like from Adidas, from Air Jordan, instead of from like that high fashion infusion in case in in the footwear situation the high fashion element is just the name whereas in terms of like the Dior Shansusi actual apparel collection there is like equal footing in terms of like what Dior and what Sean were bringing to it i mean i think the footwear is just like a money grab i've probably relaxed my stance a bit more since some of our earlier instances of talking about this but i've always wanted the creative to come first yeah. And in instances where I felt like these were the leaders in our field or a field, to see them not uphold that part of the bargain was often very disappointing. You mean like streetwear leaders? It could be anybody. It could be like, hey, if you are the leader of, if you're Apple, for example, and you're quote unquote the leader of uh, mobile phones and you just play it really safe. Uh, right? I think I that's see. the one thing that that was always a little bit disappointing for me was to see people i mean that's the thing is that it does come to a point in time where risk is not really worth it because you have something that on paper works very well mm-hmm. and you for whatever reason don't have the ability to push into new into new worlds into new spaces and test yourself well i mean in this instance i there are high fashion streetwear collaborations that i would probably hate on more i think also on this podcast i came out against the lv supreme collab i kind of remember that but in this particular case i think that i already respected both kim jones and sean stussy as like designers so the fact that they work together i just kind of saw as like the two of them wanting to work with people that they mutually respected and they had the power to like make that happen. Like, I don't know. I guess for me, I don't read really read into this as like, I didn't read it so much into this as like a bigger trend thing. So much as I saw like Jones and Sean Susie satisfying something that they were, you know, wanting to do. But you do, obviously you would be interested in that bigger picture aspect. When I look at where the current landscape is right now, it just, it, it feels as though the uh, the underlying roots of what made streetwear so interesting have gone to the wayside because you've lost a little bit of that democratic edge. But the thing is that streetwear is not just like Stussy and Supreme, I, right? 
Like there's so Correct. many independent underground, okay. like homegrown yeah. brands right now that we don't know about, like thousands across the yeah. globe. Uh, and they're trying to do their own thing with their friends and family right now. And then maybe in 10 years, we'll like hear about them. And that's just yeah. kind of how it works, right? I think I should also preface my interpretation, my definition of streetwear. Okay. I've honestly never really heard that many people adopt a similar stance. And I'm not saying that my stance is the right one so much as that it it's pretty self-evident to me. Okay. And that streetwear is essentially youthwear, right? It's always going to be representative of what the youth are into and what they wear. Okay. Right? And that was, that's what makes it so hard to pin down because youth is so generational. It's in some ways, yes, very trend-driven that our version of streetwear growing up will be different from the person born in the 2000s versus the person born in the 2010s and onwards, right? There is no actual definitive I don't think, version of streetwear. I mean, I, I, I partially disagree with you. I partially agree with you. I disagree in terms of like streetwear being youthwear because the youth also wear H&M and Zara and H&M and Zara is not streetwear. Okay, so like, do you know what I, do you know what I mean? Like, you what what the youth wear is a much bigger bucket than streetwear. No, but I think that it all f- kind of fits within it. Like, I, I, if I look at it, I, I think I very much struggle to define it. And obviously, I've been my most of my professional career has been in, in some way within this realm, right? But I do think that that definition of streetwear is both generationally defined as well as it is regionally defined. Streetwear to me has always been, in trying to make a definition that fits broadly, it is the apparel that is made that is like out of your basement, that's DIY, that isn't mass distributed or mass produced. And that's where streetwear starts from for me. But that's more of a production angle. But I think right? it's like, correct, think it's though. But it, it ties into like what young people are wearing. Because if you think about the production angle, it's like about what people can afford, right? Or like what people are making for themselves instead of like going out and buying from big brands. So, so by, by your definition, there is no such thing as luxury streetwear then. What do you mean? Like luxury streetwear doesn't exist because it doesn't come from the realm of sort of DIY. Well, okay, but then, sh- okay, yeah. yeah. I think my definition is like where streetwear began. What, where began, what okay. streetwear? What streetwear is still now, but like not the brands that we know about, not Supreme Stussy. So it's almost like streetwear has tears because where Supreme Stussy started was that, but they just obviously grew way beyond it. But they just retained that label. They just retained the streetwear label carrying forwards. The reason why I, I think that a definition is worth exploring and worth at least coming to some consensus because, well, actually is our consensus because we even talked about the beginning. It's like Sean Stussy doesn't even really like the word. I, I kind of agree because it immediately buckets things into something. And it's like, oh, it's very hard for you to leave that, that designation. The, the thing that I, like I said before, that I believe is critically important to understand is that the reason why streetwear has kind of become a little bit less interesting is that the game itself seems to really revolve around just your ability to flex and lesser on the, the actual creative output. Yeah. Right? Because ultimately, what drives things is, is in many ways the price tag associated with it. Mm-hmm. and. I think that's a bit worrying because you're losing a lot of attention. I think that's the the big thing too is where is the attention going right now, right? The, I think there's a lot of attention. attention. Whose attention are you well, talking about? Well, I think that, I think just in general, like you only have so much time to spend and everyone's attention is spent revolving around things where, where price is sort of the determinant of right. whether something is worthy of our attention. And I think ultimately when we define streetwear as something that is driven by price i think that's the one thing about kids too they don't have as much disposable income yeah i said that yeah so it it, it also it also seems counterintuitive to like what i define as sort of right right? yeah 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 um that's kind of what i'm trying to get at i'm trying to think about this definition problem you know our friends yeti out and okay 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 would you call that streetwear yeah i'd call streetwear so they're more, I guess that's a close to home example of like what I think a streetwear brand starts from. 
right, is like a bunch of guys trying to make things that are representative of what, yeah, yeah, sorry, bunch of, I was using it unisex, but yes, a bunch of people making um, apparel that revolves around culture that they're interested in and making it for themselves originally and then for like their friends and family, but they are like becoming more successful in a more commercial sense. Right. Like they're at Intersect this weekend and they've yep. done some big name collaborations. So at what point does it become not quote unquote streetwear? You know, like that's what I was saying about tears. Like I, I get it. Like the Sean Stussy Dior brand is not really a streetwear collection. It's definitely like luxury level because of that price yeah. tier, right? Because of what you said about the youth are not actually going to be wearing this collection. We don't know that. There's a certain price of admission that I think is is too easily acquired in a way. You think because it's purchasable, it's too easily acquired? No, I think that the fact that it's difficult to purchase, like I think takes a little bit of the essence out of it. Okay. So you, like, think, it, you, you ask- just think it should be more accessible? I think that at the very root, it should try to be more accessible. Okay, got it. But I think that in in many ways, luxury streetwear is a misnomer. It's an oxymoron. Like I think it, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. Probably the better application of that of that word, but yeah. I think once you leave that, I I think you really have to start thinking about what it represents. But then again, if for whatever reason this becomes the dominant trend, then yeah, I think that that it's always going to be like a floating dynamic being in a way i'm probably in some way contradicting myself there's i'm sure there's ways that you would look at what i'm saying and be like well what about this what about that it's probably better if i if i find a way to just sort of wrap it all up in terms of what i believe it to be i guess like i think it's more about understanding that certain things like by virtue of adding that luxury designation to it i think it changes actually the 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 underlying purpose of it there i'm just gonna throw one more concluding comment in on my end though is that so dior has done this collection with sean stussy that i guess the general youth cannot afford but stussy the brand is still an affordable clothing line that a general youth with their allowance can probably buy a tea so it's interesting isn't it that the same brand stretches that span so they have that dior collection and that whatever that is, like the aura of that is lent to the rest of the brand that is is acquirable, is accessible. Any more final thoughts? Yeah, like I, I don't I don't like I'm like super happy with my definition of it's weird because like I'm 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 thinking to myself like is the Dior Jordan one considered streetwear or is it considered luxury? Or does it or is luxury or streetwear defined by positioning more so than it's defined by medium because the medium is a air jordan one okay if we think about it there's some there's different factors we could use to try to define the two we can use price point at which at which it is sold okay we can medium. use the medium yes we can use the demographic that consumes and buys it and we can try to nail down like the creative spirit in which something is made yeah. oh we can also do production like i said in terms of like where and how and like at what cost it's produced. So that's like just off the top of our head, that's like five different factors, right? And so probably that's why it's hard to nail down because it's like some kind of combination of these five different factors that would make something streetwear versus luxury. And then you're always going to find exceptions. Honestly, it sounds like like a 2000 word essay to me at this point. Well, does it even need one? I'm wondering if I even need to like define it because I guess... What do we serve by by even having a definition around it? It's more for like our sort of like removing some of the cognitive load of thinking what it is because like, hey, I've just put it in a nice sort of wrapper. Okay, but this is the reason why we're trying to define it is because obviously when people cover things like the Dior Sean Stussy collection, it's interesting because of that contrast like, oh, streetwear versus high-end luxury, you know? And so because the coverage plays into these sort of like assumed definitions that's why we're trying to define it 
you could be really contradictory and be like, hey, it doesn't matter. Like the collection is not interesting because it is streetwear and high-end fashion. You could say the collection is just interesting because, I don't know, like Kim Jones and Sean Stussy, two creative men decided to work together. I think that's why we're trying to, de- to define it because the coverage plays into that like definition. What exactly is it that bothers you about the streetwear luxury connection? It, I mentioned a it earlier like i touched upon it but i really think that the purity that comes with streetwear and the reason why people start stuff like sean Stussy is the best example of somebody that started something out of purity and i think what we've seen with a lot of fashion houses as they've sort of gone through the generations iterated switched creative directors it's just very much a business right and i think that in many ways it sort of parades itself around as being creative when i think for the most part, and this is not necessarily a knock on a Kim Jones or a Virgil or whatnot, but it's more about understanding that they've created a non-democratic environment for creativity and creative output. But maybe they're trying to change. Well, I don't know if luxury itself works at the level of affordability and accessibility, right? I mean, okay. Maybe that's my, my biggest bone to pick is around I guess what luxury tries to communicate and tries to achieve versus what I believe to be the reality. has agreed to use this second half of making it up to talk about my master's You make it project. sound like I'm the only person that has a say in this show. Well, uh, the two of us are the only people who have a say in this show. So I pitched it and you said yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're going to dedicate this second half to, to Bring Back, which is my master's project. And we're going to play the first episode and then talk a little bit about how I made it. Like there are many things that I know that people love to get back. Like not zero corpses anymore because you can buy them anywhere. Like you know the chocolate sprinkles that we have and stuff. Hahosla are sprinkles that people in the Netherlands have on their bread for breakfast. The chocolate hahosla, milk, white, dark, are the most popular, but they come in many flavors Vanilla, fruit, licorice, anise seed. It is said that the Dutch consume over 14 million kilos of hahosla each year. That's the weight of 87,000 lions, the national animal of the Netherlands, or 600 houseboats, of which Amsterdam has over 3,000. But that's not what Beer Heat wanted me to bring back for her. I would probably ask for this specific type of alcohol, which is like a herbal liquor, which is very, very lovely. And it's called Schobelair. You can only get it in the Netherlands, where every area around a town has its own liquor. And Strobelair is the liquor produced by Tilburg, a town in the area where she's from. No, you can't get it here. Um, and it's it's beautiful, beautiful. Uh, but the massive bottle is like really heavy and like like a stone bottle. This is to bring back. I'm Sharice Poon. In each episode, I make an attempt to find the thing someone wants from their hometown, in order to better understand place, movement and the sense of belonging. It has been our pleasure having you on board. 
I arrive by train in Amsterdam and am unable to exit the train station. The woman at the information desk gives me a business card-sized slip of paper that reads, you can open the gates in Dutch railway stations using this key card, next to a QR code. This works, and I'm off to find a liquor store. Two hours later, I don't notice the key card falling out of my coat pocket as I take my phone out. Not until a man approaches me, holding out the pass and saying, is this possibly yours? In a city where I have no sense of belonging, to be asked whether anything is mine feels as though the answer has to be no. But actually, yes. There are three things here that are mine. Two that are indisputably mine, the key card returned to me, and the letter Jules, my collaborator who's in London researching at a distance, sent in advance via post restant to the post NL on single 250 Sioux, awaiting my pickup. And one thing I am anticipating to be in possession of soon, the bottle of Strobelair. I can't seem to find a liquor store, so I step into the American Book Center, an independent English-language bookstore. Despite its name, which seems like an indictment on my identity in this city, the store has been established here for close to 50 years. I find a tourist guidebook for drinking in Amsterdam called Wish You Were Beer and copy out a couple names of shops. On Google Maps, Sterk Amsterdam on De Klerkstraat 7 is described as a cold-cut deli, and on Facebook it is described as multi-cuisine, both descriptions of which are misleading. What it is, is a store a block long that simultaneously feels homey and cozy while having shelves and shelves of bottled alcohol. More than I could ever read about and make an informed decision on. Luckily, I don't have to, because I'm on a mission. I would probably ask for this specific type of alcohol, which is like a herbal liquor, which is very, very lovely. And it's called Schobelair. The kind staff inside bend their heads towards me and patiently identify my needs. Someone points to a door leading to another room where the hard liquor is stored. There, an older gentleman takes down two bottles of different types of strobler off the top shelf behind the cashier. It's a jutetje. It's from the north. It's the island. You know, uh, Tessel? No, I don't know. You have, in Holland, you have, different, you have four islands. Okay. And the, it's this Holland. You have here yeah. one, two, three. Okay. And the big island is Tessel. There have the jutet. It's a little bit similar. I quickly message Birhi images of the bottles. While I'm waiting to hear from her, he tells me that one of these bottles, the other one, not from Tessel, the heavy orange-brown stone bottle with the illustration of a wool carding worker, is the last in stock because the alcohol is very popular. This one is a sweet taste, mm -hmm. and, it's, and we in Holland drink this when you have tea or coffee, yeah. and then one small part, and then this is the last one, eh? And, ah. and I don't know, I think this is coming tomorrow or Wednesday. Do a lot of people buy it? A lot of people. They drink it and they like it. And, and why? It's sweet taste on it. Yeah. That's what people like. Not yeah. too strong, it's, it's, it's nice. Beerheat response. Top one, haha. Schrobelair. Mission seceded. Perfect. As I'm paying, I mention I've never tried it before. He responds. All right, well, I've never had it. So then when I bring it to her, hopefully she will give me some. Yeah, sometimes she must do it. Yeah, sometimes, and it's nice, it's, it's, it's sweet taste on it, and if you have a cup of coffee and next to it, like this, and then, oh. The next morning, I pick up my letter from Jules and use my key card, which I've discovered is 
all-powerful in its ability to open Dutch railway station gates in perpetuity, to go to Tilburg. She sent me a postcard, she wrote. Postcard from Peckham. So, this one has been very interesting research. It was hard to settle on a poem. There's something in the connection between Tilburg, where the liquor is distilled, history of home bar, name of product, etc., and Canvey Island on the Thames estuary, which is the most English place in the UK, 70% voted leave, and it was made by Dutch engineers who reclaimed the land. Over to you, Jules. Schrobler means wool carter, and the liquor's name comes from the inventor Jan Wassing, making and serving the herbal mixture in his home distillery in Tilburg at his wool carting shop. Though Wassing invented Schrobler fairly recently, in 1973, the stone bottle the liquor comes in is a reference to the 17th and 18th century history of the city, when the people of Tilburg collected their urine in stone jugs to sell to local wool manufacturers for their use as a scouring solvent for sheared wool. There is a half-in-jest and all-in-love nickname for Tilburg, Jugtown and a nickname for its citizens, Jug Pissers. To the Jug Pissers, Schrobeler is hometown pride, distilled and bottled. So much so that there's this song about the drink and Tilburg. And people from the area will take a bottle of Schrobeler with them to parties, just in case. Canvey Island in Essex, England, which Jules wrote about, also has a bit of 17th century Dutch-related history. Canvey Island, an 18-square-kilometer piece of land on the Thames estuary, lies entirely under sea level. It was uninhabitable until 1623, when Canvey's English landowners began a project to reclaim the land, build dikes, and raise seawalls. The project was managed and executed by 300 skilled Dutch engineers and workers in exchange for land. Fast forward to 2016, when the island, which has a higher proportion of white residents and a lower proportion of foreign-born residents than the rest of England, voted 70% leave in the 2016 Brexit referendum. In an article published on the Deutsche Welle website by Morgan Meeker, Canvey resident Collins says, For the people I know who voted leave, immigration is not high on the agenda. Personally, I don't like bureaucrats in other countries telling us what to do. We can remember when we were self-governing. We've always controlled ourselves. We've managed fine. And I get that. I also don't like feeling as if control has been taken away from me. The residents of Canvey Island are just as proud as the residents of Tilburg of where they're from. It's a tight-knit community full of hometown pride. There is this difference, I see. The closeness of the Canvey Island community resulted in this desire to keep to themselves, to be wholly self-sufficient, to ask for help only on their own terms, 
when unmanageable outside powers like the sea flooding in forces them to. And then there's hometown pride, distilled and bottled, to be shared in celebration. A liquor that encourages voluntarily giving up control together to better face the unforeseeable future. This episode was written and produced by me, Sharice Poon. Music and audio from Blue Dot Sessions, Broke for Free, Hoos May Woos, and Juliet Sprake. Thank you to Beer Heat for speaking to me, and thank you to Juliet Sprake for collaborative research work. In the next episode, I look for 7-inch records in Munich, Germany for Yoen. So I've produced this podcast called To Bring Back, and my description of it is that in each episode, I make an attempt to find the thing someone wants from their hometown in order to better understand place, movement, and the sense of belonging. And it is seven episodes. The research started this summer, and I actually have to thank Eugene and all the Make-In crew for actually making this happen because it started with uh, Eugene and the Make-In team gifting me a your rail pass for two weeks. And then I use that pass to do this research project instead of going on holiday. And so what I did is that I asked a bunch of London-based Europeans, if I was to bring you back something from your hometown, what would you want? And then I went out to go look for those things. But the search was really more of a device to talk about the, the subjects I mentioned, like place, movement, and belonging. It actually made me really nervous to share it with you. Why? And even though I asked you if we could do it on making it up, it does also make me nervous to share it with a wider audience. And I think because it's really a personal project. Yeah. And I've never really shared anything that was so much my own thing. Like a lot of my work so far has been client work or even with making it's under this larger umbrella, right? Of like being. So basically it's like, under your name and your name only. Yeah, my name, my name only. I start. I mean, I collaborated with a lot of people. A lot of people made this happen, but really, the driving force was just me. And the shape of it is really because of like my own interests. And it, I think I think that's really exciting. Like, I feel like I finally kind of get it for people who do their own personal projects, you know. But um, yeah, it's scary at the same time because I think it's just like. It's not even that I'm scared of negative feedback. It's just like putting a lot of yourself out there for people to know. Like, this is offering something about me. What was the hardest part about this whole thing? The hardest part about this whole thing... You know what? It was that I didn't have an editor for this. Like, I had a mentor to advise me on the project and who always like kept me I guess on track in terms of like what the masters requires but in terms of all the writing I did and the shape of those episodes like I mainly had to do it myself and listen to it and edit it myself. Was the process the same throughout everything and did it sort of live up to your expectations? So I had originally written them completely differently and actually originally was not intending to make a podcast at all. Like I set out to do this research and I actually wanted the outcome to be something that wasn't audio because I wanted to try to make something different. Like I wanted to try to use different skills, but then it wasn't really working. Like it was difficult to say why it wasn't working, but it was just not 
it, it just didn't have, I don't know, it was just seemed really forced. And so I just wound up doing the, I guess now what I know how to do best, which was like turning it into an audio story. And then it just suddenly started to like get the response that I had been looking for. And it's really hard to say whether um, it is everything I expected because I've only just started sharing it with people. Like my presentation went well, but I like maybe like 10 people have listened to it so far. So I don't know. After this, more people will probably listen to it. Did you get good feedback on it? Yeah, I, I have, but they're all people who care about me. So like, how much does that count for to yeah. you? I mean, not to say that I don't care about these people. Like, it means a lot that the people who care about me have been giving me positive feedback. But like, I think the real test is like, what will listeners who don't know me personally think of this? Like, will it have an impact on them? What did you think it'd be like to do this? And what was the reality of doing it? I thought this entire master's was going to be more boring. <laughs> Which sounds like a terrible recommendation for education. I didn't actually really think I was going to come out of this with work that was really exciting to me. And the it turned out that in putting together this project, it was it's not just the outcome that has been exciting to me, but also just the process of putting it together, like the methods I figured out to like go out and uh, get the audio for these stories, to do the research for it, to do the writing, like all of that was. Uh, really a learning process for me. I don't think I could have done otherwise outside of this master's. Yeah. Like maybe, but it would have been much harder. So like, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to just like have taken time away from work and find out what it's like to try to put together, you know, a complete finished personal project like this. Yeah. And I'm really proud of it. Like, I think I'm I'm more proud of it than I thought it was going to be. The fact that I wanted to talk about it on this podcast also indicates that like I'm proud of it. That's true because none of us have ever really been that open about talking about things that we've done. Yeah. When was the last time you felt this sense of accomplishment? Probably the first editorial stories I did for Macon back at the beginning of 2018. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like that same sense of like, I learned new skills in producing this and that same thing of like, I definitely produce this with a big audience in mind and I want to share it with everyone, but also like putting it out there is like being a little bit vulnerable because your name is on it. Did you learn anything personally while doing this? Because the one thing I thought was most interesting is there's one episode where Cherise like basically trespasses. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I trespass. That episode's really crazy. Because I both trespass, and then a couple hours later, I get, like, what is the right word? I get lectured in Italian about why I should be Catholic, essentially. So what is the personal learning from that? I think it's like, if you have a mission, you you find the courage to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. Like, for the service of like bringing this project into being, I was like, yes, I will do all of these things. I will trespass and I will talk to this Italian woman. And if it wasn't for this, like I would not be doing those things. Like that's not in my nature. Yeah. So that's really great. There's probably a, a lot of people listening to this that have, haven't heard an episode yet beyond the, the first one we shared and I highly recommend it. It's just like a nice way to see someone put together a story from start to finish because i think that itself actually has a little bit of uh character to it when someone does something from start to finish yeah and if you want to listen to more of it then you can just search for to bring back on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts i have to give a shout out to kazim who actually made the mention that he wanted to hear us talk about the whole stussy and dior thing making your dreams come true kazim also a good uh, reminder to folks that if you want to hear us talk about things, all it takes is one email or one DM and then we do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about making, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at makein.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, and Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>